China has two rivers which are central to its identity, the Yellow River to the north and the Yangtze to the south. Between these two, and especially near the Yellow River, is the cradle of Chinese civilization. The rivers are both the givers and takers of life, providing the water and nutrients to sustain growing populations, but also huge floods and cause changes which destroy habitations and harvests, displacing communities and spreading disease. Look up any of those morbid lists of the most deadly incidents in history, and China makes a strong showing for both man-made and natural disasters, and the Yellow and the Yangtze are right up there making their contributions to the death tolls. Legend has it that King Yu, who was around in the 3rd millennium BC, tamed the Yellow River, stopping its harms and harnessing its benefits. He studied the efforts of previous leaders, stories which had passed down through the generations as part of Chinese mythology, and he worked out a system of channels and dams to make the river manageable, even establishing some primitive agricultural practices. He supposedly worked with a yellow dragon and black turtle in this righteous and important task, and after many years, his success led him to the imperial throne, establishing the Xia dynasty on the banks of the river, China's first semi-mythical dynasty. These days, in this age where dragons and turtles are unable, or perhaps unwilling, to aid us mortals in our efforts to manage great waterways, both of these ancient rivers are under severe threat from pollution and industrialization, in the same way that the environment in all developed and developing countries is suffering. But in China, the pace of change in dubious regulatory standards has been particularly destructive, and I can't imagine even King Yu would be tempted to come out of retirement to lend a helping hand to the problem. The Yellow River is dry in some places now, while the Yangtze has been the primary route for the country's wastewater and heavy metal discharge into the ocean. That said, the party has become increasingly aware of the people's concerns about pollution, and are taking steps to get on top of it. Greener technologies, after all, are the future, and the Chinese want to be at the forefront of this brave new world. Grade 7 teacher Penny and I had the idea of cycling to the great historical waterway of the Yangtze, maybe seeing if we can get across. But more than that, it was something to aim at on a pleasant spring Saturday, and I had a shiny red new bike to show off. On top of that, Penny had left a note under my door when I was sick, saying, I think you know something, we should talk. Get well soon. Penny. And I needed to ask her about that. With the American teacher Eddie gone, relocated back to his home nation after throwing objects around the classroom, letting a student eat glass and generally riling up the management with his near-constant moaning, Jess had taken the chance to relocate into the school. She was now just downstairs and along the hall, and so I went down to invite her on our trip. She was eating one of those bulbous, watery Chinese pears. We fetched Penny and headed off. Jess was on the school bike and fell behind quickly. Penny and I were neck and neck, skipping red lights and smiling at old ladies weeding the flower beds. When we eventually stopped, I noticed the message that Jess had sent to my phone. Can't pedal anymore. Going to sit by the river and read. Hope you'll have a nice time. That's what it said. Ural. With Jess jettisoned, we went full speed ahead down the long roads towards the river. Our heavy breath sucked up vast quantities of pristine smog as we passed factories with utilitarian names like Chongshu Plastic Packaging Manufacturing Company Limited. We stopped at pagodas and rustic neighbourhoods, 
impressed ourselves with our sense of direction, and bitched about the school. That new Dodi guy, what about him? At the river, we found a ferry near the huge Sutong Bridge, which leads north to Nantong City. And beside the ferry, a few bemused security staff who wondered why we'd want to go across. We had no compelling answer to this question, but we knew it had to be done. We understood their doubts when we reached the other side to find a modern portside district with absolutely nothing for anyone who doesn't intend to ship goods somewhere. So we simply turned around and got back on the next ferry. The river here is two and a half miles wide and is a grey beast in all directions. Hundreds of huge tankers and barges are moored in vast floating parking lots, another sign of the unspeakable scale of China's industrial might. It seems the stuff of fiction that in colonial days foreign powers routinely had gunboats patrolling this river, putting down uprisings and whatnot. The battles of the Opium Wars in the mid-19th century were largely waged on seafaring vessels, conducted at the coastlines or on the rivers. Most of it took place down in the Guangdong, Hong Kong area, but it stretched as far north as Beijing, in the Emperor's backyard. The British, along with their allies the French and the Americans in the Second Opium War, could depend on their superior military technology to win decisively, no matter how outnumbered they were in terms of troop numbers. Having taken Canton and securing the ports in the south of China, the British strategy was to use the Yangtze River to cut China in half, blocking the Grand Canal and stopping important supplies from getting from south to north. The feather in this particular cap was Nanjing, China's southern capital city, which sits on the southern bank of the river. Taking Nanjing would be a fatal wound to the chain, and the British were poised to do just that. The Battle of Qingqiang, or Zhenjiang, as the city is known in modern Mandarin, took place on July 21st, 1842, just downstream from Nanjing. This will be the final battle of the First Opium War. The British blockaded the river, and thousands of soldiers went for the city. The Chinese mostly had swords and spears, so they were literally outgunned by the foreigners. Once the British took the city, many of the defending soldiers, including the supreme commander of the Qing army, killed themselves. With everyone's attention now on Nanjing, the Qing had no option but to sue for peace. The Treaty of Nanking, as it was known then, was signed on HMS Cornwallis moored on the Yangtze River, next to the city, on 29th of August, 1842. The most literal example of gunboat diplomacy you're ever likely to find. The treaty ceded the island of Hong Kong to the British, although the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, moaned that it was nothing more than a barren rock. It wasn't all they got, though. They got access to a bunch more ports, most significantly Shanghai, where they would be free to move in and live under their own rules. Trading relations were improved, from the British perspective, and the British also came away with a payout of 21 million silver dollars to cover the costs of the opium destroyed by Lin Zexu, mentioned at the end of the last episode, and for other various infringements it was deemed that the Chinese were liable for. The French and the Americans rode the British coattails, getting concessions for themselves, sometimes justifying that it was unfair on the Chinese to be exploited solely by the British. Foreigners flowed into China for a whole host of pursuits, and Chinese culture began to be influenced by the Laowai as never before, much to the chagrin of the nominal rulers of the land. Then, in the midst of all this, the Yellow River changed course and caused havoc across vast swathes of the land, ruining homes and farmland and such. Partly as a response to this, 
but also because of other resentments and social forces, the Taiping Rebellion struck, where self-anointed younger brother of Jesus and so-called heavenly king Hong Xiuquan waged war against the Manchus and set up a capital city in Nanjing called Tianjin, or the heavenly capital. We touched on the Taiping Rebellion in episode 24, Sunrise in Nanjing, and a bloody tale it was too. Other rebellions popped up around the country, all harnessing this anti-Manchu sentiment, but the Taiping is the most famous and caused the most deaths. It's actually among the most deadly conflicts of all time, killing perhaps 30 million Chinese. The British watched on bemused, at first tentatively welcoming this apparently Christian movement, until it became apparent that the leader was an outright nutcase. As if the Qing didn't have enough on their plates, the Second Opium War broke out in 1856, with the British dissatisfied with the implementation of the Treaty of Nanking. They wanted more concessions, and a dispute down in Canton, upon a British boat called the Arrow, gave them the opportunity to take up arms once again. The French got on board this time, quite literally, and the Americans, who were supposed to be neutral, aided the British in a sticky moment on the high seas in 1859, Captain explaining to his superiors that blood is thicker than water. The Treaty of Tianjin, four years later, marked the end of this war, and gave even more concessions to the British, more trading opportunities, the effective legalisation of the opium trade, and an ambassador posted in Beijing. Diplomatic communications were to be henceforth written in English, and the Qing were forced to stop referring to the British as Yi, barbarians, which offended them. Yes, the Victorian Brits were as much snowflakes as anyone. When still the British found themselves frustrated by Chinese dilly-dallying, and after some of their diplomats were tortured and executed, they decided to loot and destroy large parts of the 700-year-old cultural monument that is Beijing's Summer Palace, and completely burn down the so-called Old Summer Palace, a destructive project which took the British three days to complete. These acts of cultural vandalism still go unforgiven in China to this day. Having put the Qing in their place once again, the British decided to aid the besieged empire in their fight against the Taiping Rebellion, in a case of it's better the devil you know. Jesus's younger brother, Hong Xiuquan, died mysteriously near the end of the war in mid-1864, leaving his heavenly kingdom to his son, Tian Guifu. He was just 14 years old when the Qing authorities caught up with him on the run a few months later, and they were not merciful to this teenager. Whatever horrible death you might be imagining ended this poor kid's life, the reality was worse. Ling Chi is execution by slow slicing. These treaties and the events surrounding them mark China's lowest point. Remember, this is the Middle Kingdom. The rulers have a mandate from heaven no less. The emperor sat on the dragon throne and ruled with impunity everything from the seas to the mountains. And here they were getting their ass handed to them by a bunch of barbarians with big noses. To make matters worse, the Japanese would soon follow suit and run rings around the Chinese in the coming decades, and in the most depraved way. And this was doubly humiliating, as Japan had always been China's little sibling. The Opium Wars and the Unequal Treaties swept the rug out from under China's precious self-image, and it wouldn't be until 1949 and the communist takeover that pride would start to return. With those first lines in the new national anthem reading, Chilai bu yuanzo nuli or Arise, you who refuse to be slaves. It goes on to say, With our flesh and blood, 
Let us build a new great wall. Now, this is powerful stuff for a country and a people who'd been trapped beneath the boots of Western and Japanese imperialists for so long. 1844 might seem like a long time ago to outsiders, but for the Chinese, this is the day before yesterday. And it's often evoked in modern discourse when China claims it's being bullied. It really plays well with the domestic audience, even though not many neutral observers would credibly claim now that China is a victim of bullying. Quite the opposite. Back on the river, chugging towards the southern bank, standing on the ferry among a few cars and a lot of haulage trucks, the captain came to find us. He was a smiling middle-aged man in dingy green dungarees. I think most foreigners in this area took the more touristy trips to Chongming Island, a little to the east, with its parks and lakes. Apparently Penny and I preferred to stroll around ports inhaling exhaust fumes, and this was a welcome occurrence for the captain. He invited us into his cabin and offered us a seat on the little padded bench by a table. He and his second-in-command were enjoying a green tea and watching rolling news on TV. He offered me, as a man, and not Penny, as a woman, a cigarette, and then proceeded to ask me, as a man, and not Penny, as a woman, my salary, and Penny, as a woman, but not me, as a man, her age. Penny quietly boiled away until we alighted at the riverbank, emerging into a pristine, empty artificial district, which was waiting to be filled up by students and businesses. The route back led us past Johnny Burgers, previously mentioned by the all-seeing eye that is Dodie. It's a small but thriving burger joint owned, with his Chinese girlfriend, by a Canadian called Johnny. It's not Johnny's Burgers, it's Johnny Burgers. And those burgers were deliciously juicy and came with big fat crispy chips and no salad to get in the way. We complimented the meal with a beer, happy to be undoing all the fitness we'd accumulated that day. Over dinner, Penny told me that she'd become increasingly convinced that her attempts to teach English and physics were being thwarted by a department which really didn't seem to care about the results. I'd listened to Penny's lengthy expositions many times by this stage, and they never bothered me, and this one was truly a dumper truck outpour of conspiratorial grumble. Apparently, one of the good Chinese teachers had been disappeared, while another really good teacher candidate had been passed over in favour of some ass-kisser. Penny had a feeling that I had some insider information, based on something I'd previously said, and that's why she'd put a note under my door when I was sick. But I didn't know anything, I said. I'm as much in the dark as anyone. So you don't know of a campaign to exclude me and alienate me? No. Oh my god, I'm so paranoid. I spent hours sweeping my apartment for bugs. What? I gotta get out. And thankfully, it was Chinese New Year. A break was due for everyone. Chinese New Year is the paramount Chinese public holiday. Whole sectors of society shut down and huge migration takes place as people cram onto public transport and head back to their hometowns. For us Lao Wai, it was a month off work. Some of us teachers went home or on holiday somewhere. I went back to the south of England, saw my family, then went to the Philippines to lay around on a beach for 10 days or so. Jess went to Canada to see a friend. Mark and his family went to Thailand, where his wife was from. Penny went to New York to see her family. Kelly and Ralph also went back to America, with a relocation back to the States for the two of them in the back of their mind. But Arizona man and his family stuck around because, well, they had everything they needed here. 
Actually, instead of going back to America, he was arranging for more of his possessions to be transported here. Dodi, too, stayed local with his Chinese wife and their child. As for Sherry and Fab, well, I don't know what they did. And if you can remember who's who in that cast of characters, then give yourself a gold star. It's quite an achievement. So it's a month off for those lucky teachers, but it's not a month off for the Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you podcast. We'll be back in the Middle Kingdom, pending disaster, in two weeks, for the beginning of the year of the Ram. Ram.